Cinemaker, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 23, The Informant from 2009. I'm Mike Manzi. I am Tobin Addington. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And first things first, Tobin, I want to apologize to you. Oh. Uh, you taught a class in 2010. <laughs> yes. Writing the screenplay, I think. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Which I don't, we might have talked about on this show before. I have no interest in making movies, but I, I took that class so that I could take another class with you. Oh. And in that class... We read this script, and I read this script, and I was like, this is dumb. I don't like it. And I watched the movie a couple years later, or maybe that year or whatever, and I was like, this movie's all right. Like, it's kind of weird. I don't get it. I watched it again last night, and I was so wrong. This movie is wonderful. I love this movie. I don't know. I, I, I do think it's one of those movies where, like, if it doesn't click, it's not going to click. But something about it this time around, it clicked, and man, oh, man, did I like it. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that. Had you seen it before, Mike? I actually had seen this in theaters twice when it was out. Like, I went and saw it, and I I came home, and I said, Dad, you're going to love this movie. And I took him to see it the next week, and he liked it. Uh, It's funny. Like, I was very amused by this movie when I watched it, but this time, I was, like, laughing out loud. Like, something about it affected me differently, and I just found it to be, like, funnier, I guess, this time around. This is one of the movies that I think earns the exclamation point after the title. It's spelled the informant exclamation point. And I I feel like everything about this movie from the opening title card to the way they spell the title, tonally, it it knows exactly what it wants to do. But I think you're totally right, Joey. Like, you have to either click into it or it's just not going to work for you. And I don't know if it has anything to do with the fact that we watched all of his movies in a row so far. I don't think it does because... Like, tonally or thematically, it is similar because it's about a guy making money and wanting to advance his career, which we just talked about a lot last week with The Girlfriend Experience, right? And a lot of his other movies are about the same kind of things. But I don't think it's that. Like, I don't think being more familiar with Soderbergh made me like him more. I don't know what it is. It was just everything about this just worked for me. You know, ranking them on Letterboxd, you know, it's in my top five so far. I mean, we still have a few more that I know that I love that we're going to, you know, it's going to be some tough competition for it. But, like, we're pretty deep in the game here. And for top five, it man, I just, I really enjoy this movie. It looks to me like you both have it in the top five at this point. I, I don't have it that high, but I'm pleasantly surprised that you guys liked it this much because I've, I've always had a real soft spot for this movie. One thing about it that really struck me this time was sort of the contradiction between words and imagery. His voiceover is just brilliant. Like It's probably like one of my top five favorite voiceovers, uh, not just top five favorite Soderbergh films, but of all time. Real quick, have we had a voiceover so far in Cinemakers or is this the first one? I was trying to think. I couldn't remember another one. I know we've had pieces in the World War II one. Oh, and Girlfriend Experience had a little bit, but I mean, like, nothing's been as prevalent as this, right? Yeah, not as, not, not as a device like this, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, movies that have this much voiceover, you know, generally there's, a, there's like sort of a reason it's needed is sort of to like further explain the film for the audience. It's sort of like a <laughs> crutch at times, you know? And this is being used for a completely different effect. This isn't guiding the audience at all. Like it's almost like the anti voiceover in a lot of ways. It's like, hey, we know that you might be bored of hearing about lysine and corn. So like our main guy is bored. So like let's just babble about something else. Like let's just talk about colors. Let's just talk about you know, wouldn't it be weird if you you know, if you answered your phone and you were on the voice or like you called home and you answered or whatever, like basically from Schizopolis. It's just these weird tangents that I can't think of another movie where so much dialogue is just like obfuscated by either voiceover or music. Like we just like entire scenes were just like, nope, don't care. Don't know what's going on, but it's totally fine. Like, cause it's the way that it's meant to be. 
Yeah, and we should say, just to sort of set this up a little bit, that Matt Damon plays this guy who's the at the time the youngest president of a division at ADM, Archer Daniels Midland Company, one of the, you know, this huge conglomerate that's like behind a lot of sort of food. Big corn, right? Uh, big corn, right? It's big, big corn, and then they're into chemicals, and, you know, it's it's in a lot of stuff that we eat. He says, he even says somewhere, if you look on, the, on any box of anything you eat, you'll see our name somewhere on there. And he ends up ultimately being a unreliable narrator of this wacky, crazy story. It's a true story about this guy. And what begins as kind of a, oh, isn't this funny? He sort of has this digressive voiceover, ends up actually being, you find out by the end, like a symptom of his pathology, like he's a pathological liar, and there's something wrong with him. And that, that, that would, what we've been sort of watching and laughing at the whole time ends up being not just funny, but very sad and almost, and a little dark by the end. And the movie sort of, you know, every time I've seen it, I, I know what's coming. So it's not surprising me, but it does lull you into a, a, a sort of sense of, oh, isn't this guy kind of funny and kind of crazy. And then you begin to say, well, wait a minute, hold on. He's not telling the whole truth. And then by the end, you're like, oh, wow, he is destroying his life with his inability to tell the truth. It's just used really, really well here. This is like one of the one of the best uses, as you said, Mike, a voiceover that I know in movies. I think what saves that ending from being completely gut-wrenching is that after he goes to prison, after he gets out, his wife, Melanie Linsky, played by Melanie Linsky, is still there waiting for him. Right, right. So, like, he at least gets a happy ending. And she, like we said about a couple weeks ago, at least, she is one of many comedic actors in this movie that is given nothing funny to do. Like, by choice, right? Like, so, she's in this, and Paul F. Tompkins is in this, and Patton Oswalt's in this, and Joel McHale's in this. Andy Daly. The Smothers Brothers are in this? Arden Marine is in there somewhere. John Cusack's other sister is yes. in this, the one that you usually don't see. We also have, not that she's necessarily a comedic actress, but Anne Dowd, a.k.a. Patty Levin from The Leftovers is in this. And, like, nobody in this movie is even trying to be funny, except for Matt Damon. He's not trying to be funny. It's a very weird, particular choice, both in terms of casting and writing and acting, but, like, somehow it just all works. And I think because... It's all chosen so specifically and carried out so effectively. It ties into what you were just saying, Tobin, about how it does become really tragic by the end because he's not trying to be funny. He is. And then you realize, like, oh, no, he's really not trying to be like he, he thinks he's doing good both for himself and his company and the FBI. Yeah, he's terminally deluded in this movie. He is an informant for the FBI about a price-fixing scheme, an international price-fixing scheme that will eventually send people to prison for years. And he thinks the whole time he's going to be able to stay at the company and like they're going to reward him for having tur turned in his superiors. And, and he really seems to believe that through the course of the movie. I love the way that he's cast all these comedic actors and then had them, quote unquote, play it straight. Like they're not playing the comedy. The comedy comes through in the voiceover and in some of the situations. And Damon's great comedic performance, again, not going for a joke. But the fact that I think one of the, the smart things about that is that since the movie is both, it could play, you could make this movie as a thriller. You could make this movie as a... The Firm, which they reference in this. It could be The Firm, it could be Aaron Brockovich, or it could be this kind of, or it could be a comedy. And because the actual underlying issues are so real and so impactful, the, to play it straight but with comedic actors helps clue us into the sort of scrambled tone that he's working with here. Like, is this funny or is it not? Well, it's kind of both. And I think that that's, that's something that the casting really, you know, he just goes all in on it. And this is one of the times when going all in on an idea really pans out. I don't know if we mentioned, forgive me if we did, but like this is also based on a true story, right? That makes it 
both sort of funnier and sadder. Early on, I forgot that it was based on a true story, and so his name is Mark Whitaker. Matt Damon's name is Mark Whitaker. There's another guy in his office. Oh, Andy Daly's character is also named Mark, I think, or, or somebody's, somebody's named Mark. I'm like, why are there two people named Mark? I was like, is that just sort of like for screwball effect? He's like, oh, no, like, this is based on real people, and they might have changed the names or whatever, but like, it really kind of hammers home, like, this is things that happen to people, and that there was this guy who, by all intents and purposes, seemed like he was up to good. And like, you know, he is rewarded throughout the movie. Like, we don't explicitly see that, but like, by the end of the movie, he's making $350,000 a year, a VP or what, like some really high ranking thing. And he still has his eyes on like running the company. Like, I guess, quote unquote, normal person would have stopped, but also a normal person wouldn't have done any of this. So like, it's all such a weird experience and story and unfolding of events. That's what's so deceptive about a sociopath, right? Is that like, it doesn't really seem like there's anything wrong with this guy, but peel back one layer and like everything is exposed he's barely keeping up the facade it almost seems like every scene he's inventing a new thread to the lie so that he can cover his ass at some point in some way he may not seem like he knows what he's doing but ultimately we find out that he has extorted this company for like 11 million dollars right like behind the scenes like he's covering up the fact that he's just robbing this place blind and so like this whole folly of getting the fbi involved and the lie about the lysine to cover his own ass it's all like this major distraction so that no one catches him ripping off his own company like it's truly demented to live this type of life like he says like living a double life like that's that's brought up a lot but but like he imposed it on himself too so it's really it's really strange to try and get inside this guy's head and and the movie like defies you to do that in a lot of ways like with the voiceover narration you know it's like as soon as you might think you know what this guy is up to he starts rambling off about like butterflies and stuff and like butterflies some of them are just coasting on their looks and and it's like what are you getting at man like you're truly bizarre and like at the end when he's like there's one line at the end where it all kind of came together where he's like uh he gets caught by scott bacula in a, in a lie about the area code right yeah because he's uh forging documents too to cover his ass right. and he says i think i need to go back to the hospital and that's when i didn't catch that in previous viewings but i was like oh like he's had issues before this guy's he's mentally ill it, it is kind of sad but i think you know that's what makes it a, a black comedy is that we're dealing with darkness but because he was able to go on and live a successful normal life after all this like i just don't really feel too bad laughing at him right you get the sense that he would laugh at himself that you know at least the way that the character is portrayed by matt damon he's the sort of liar who I think believes the lie as he's telling it. Like it's the truth for, for him at that moment. And, you know, in some situations that can be a really terrifying prospect. And in others, like in, you know, in this, because, because the things he's lying about aren't, you know, directly hurting people in that moment right across from him, you know, since the pain is largely financial and removed from us, right? If the pain is we're all paying an extra two cents, you know, a soda and all over the world or whatever that, I don't know, we can laugh at it a little easier or something in the way, the way it's delivered, but he really does seem to believe. And I think that the movie is really smart in um, not cluing us into the fact that he's lying early. Like, you know, you could make this movie where he's scheming in the background. It could still be funny, but we know he's, he's spending, he's doing all of this to cover his track and just getting deeper and deeper. But he really does seem to enjoy every moment of being the, being an informant for the FBI. And, and we see him sort of relishing it. And the, movies, the movie believes it early on. And so we believe it too. And then not, it's not until later on that it all, it all it starts to fall apart and he's forced to face it. And in that moment, we're forced to face how deep the lies go as well. 
You know, while watching this, and actually even more so now that we're talking about it, this voiceover reminds me of another person, another sociopath in Patrick Bateman of American Psycho. I mean, the way that they carry out their actions is very different, sort of. I mean, they're both very, on some level, evil, right? But like, I was thinking about it just the way that he describes, like he just veers off and just sort of daydreams and just talks about whatever. So, you know, talking about Huey Lewis in the news or talking about whatever he's talking about in this movie, like going to Tokyo and wearing a tie for a day or two and putting in his bag. Like, well, I don't what like what i don't understand whatever it is i wonder if anybody for like a thesis for like a college somewhere has compared these two sociopaths because they both use voiceover so predominantly both are so removed from the world and they're both living these double lives and it's it's kind of weird like i thought i, I sort of said it like as a joke like he's you know this idiot patrick bateman but like he kind of is yeah, the language of the film is working in a similar way. You're, you're totally right. I, I had not thought of that. That's that's a really smart point. And I think that one of my favorite parts, that scene where Scott Bakula does confront him and he and he's forced to confront it himself. And even uh, his wife, Melanie Linsky, who is who is always amazing and is so good in this movie where she tells him, like, enough, stop it. Like, stop it. Do you hear in that moment how his voiceover works for him? Because his voiceover is, is automatically finding a way to try and cover for the lie. So his voiceover starts, and then he starts to speak, and then Scott Bakula says, no, stop, wait. That repeats as his voiceover is finally in this movie not able to save him. And to see that, sort of feel that breakdown happen in that moment is, I think, a, a, such a great technique that we've been set up for this whole time, being inside his head like that. This movie is written by Scott Z. Burns, who's going to go on to write uh, Side Effects and Contagion. So I'm, I'm looking forward. Like, those are obviously very different movies tonally from this, but they're not too far off in the future. So I don't know if... Because this was adapted from a book, right? That was based on the guy. So I don't know if Soderbergh... I, I couldn't find any information about like whether he worked with Scott Z. Burns on adapting this or if it was like already a screenplay that existed or whatever. But like I want to see if there's any kind of other comparisons that we can draw between those three movies. But what I also saw is that Scott Z. Burns also wrote The Bourne Ultimatum, which I think is also kind of funny, like another Matt Damon movie, kind of like the total opposite of this. But, you know, just he's writing all over the Matt Damon spectrum, going from ultimate spy to bumbling spy although he's actually kind of like he's kind of yeah, good he's, like, he's good kind of a good informant yeah. it's this weird combination of like access plus privilege plus not even like intelligence it's like just being able to sell a lie sort of right like oh no like i talked to this guy uh he says there's a mole and then like nobody really questions him that's i think the funniest thing throughout this entire movie is that nobody questions anything until it's too late the FBI is not even questioning him until like other people. The FBI question them. They're like, "Oh, oh no! Like, what? I, we we just took this guy at his word." Like, that's what's funny to me is that like everybody sort of trusts everybody, and that sort of lulls you as the viewer. Like, am I supposed to like? I can't tell if everything he's saying is the truth or nothing is the truth. And I think that's really really effective. That like he's consistent one way or the other. We just don't know where that pendulum falls until the very end, of course. He's very disarming. Usually he throws out this fake origin story like the Joker about his parents dying in a car crash and being raised by a billionaire who ran theme parks. That immediately will throw someone off or like confuse them or get them to think a little differently about this person. So I, he's got a lot of those tactics and especially like the way he looks. He's very unassuming. You know, he just looks like a nerd, basically. Like he's a scientist who was put into the business side of his company so he really doesn't know exactly what he's doing there in the first place but it's great like no one no one ever suspects him 
And I totally think he believes his own bullshit because there's that scene where he's taking the lie detector test and like <laughs> Joe McHale comes in and he's like, I nailed it, right? And Joe McHale's like, you clearly have no idea how to read a lie detector test. Like you're off the charts, your ink is splattering the walls, like you just, you're lying left and right. But then soon after, he's able to win over Joe McHale's character too. Like he he's able to just fool you somehow. You're right. Like it's just this kind of persona that you have no reason not to believe he just seems really genuine with all of his information and the way he expresses himself like he never gives you any reason not to trust him which is scary <laughs> you know he could be doing a lot worse things than what he's actually doing right, so right oh we also i mean i'm just i'm just looking at my notes really early on we have a mini oceans 11 reunion mm, uh, yes. that we have obviously matt damon's back but what's that other actor's name the guy who i think he's only there in like the, the one or two scenes at the very beginning he never shows back up i don't think a lot of roles are like that. Like Thomas Wilson, yeah. Biff shows up for like two or three yeah. scenes, and Patton Oswalt's only there for like two or three. I, I kind of like that concept of it. It's like, okay, it's it's a weird kind of stunt casting where it's like all of these comedic character actors. So it's like like even a household person will recognize them but not really know how to place them. Right, right. You'll feel familiar, but yeah. Yeah, so it's like this instant familiarity, and then you can just sort of get on with it. But it's also kind of disarming because, like, Patton Oswalt shows up and you're sort of like, all right, it's time for you to be funny. And then, like, he's just not. It's effective in that way, but it's it's this weird, like, oh, he's there. Like, oh, there's Paul F. Tompkins. Like, I love him. Oh, he's just he's just asking questions. Like, that's just, that just what he's doing. It's a little weird to see a clean-shaved Paul F. Tompkins looking yes. about, like, 20 years younger. <laughs> if it wasn't for Mr. Show, I would have been really thrown off. But, you know, his, his classic sketches, like, Champion the Drinker and all those sketches, he's always clean-shaven. So it is, it is disarming, but I am uh, a fan of Paul F. Tompkins with or without a beard. I think it would be one thing if they got SNL players to do all these roles, right? Then it would be maybe too distracting or if you got, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. sort of like Jimmy Fallon or just like A-level, like, not that their material is better, but just, you know, popularity or fame-wise. I think they went with a really good caliber of comedians here. And it also plays for that kind of fun game of, like, where are they going to be? Like you were just saying, like, I was looking on Letterboxd and IMDb. I'm like, okay, so Pat Oswalt's, like, fourth build or something. And I'm like, I couldn't have missed him. I know what he looks like, but he doesn't show up to, like, an hour 20 in. I'm like, what? Like, he's fourth build, though. I guess because it's just based on name alone. You know what I mean? Like, it's strange, but it's 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 kind of cool. It's pretty remarkable how this script, like, talking about the, the, the writer, how he's able to juggle this many freaking characters you know like almost every two or three scenes we're getting a new character introduced or like we're shifting gears now there's all these attorneys on the scene and you know now we're at another branch of the fbi and and it's really able to keep everything straight and clear and clean you know i never got confused like who's this guy why is he showing up now or any i never got a sense that i was like missing anything that i missed a step and like i laugh so hard when at the end his newest attorney comes in wearing like yep. a hawaiian shirt <laughs> and i'm like, like the tommy bahama shit. shirt <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing what I love about that character is that we hear him talking about that guy before we see him. And it's right when he's caught in the lie that we see his parents being asked, yes. was he adopted? And then he's basically saying like, oh, but my new attorney, you know, this guy, he gets me. Like, he knows why I had to say that thing. And then we cut to him and he's just in a room full of guys in suits and he's just there in that like blue and pink, you know, flowery Hawaiian shirt. And just like, oh, right. Like, this is the caliber of guy, the type of lawyer who's like, no, 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 no. I understand why you did that. I got you here. That's all he's left with. And that's it's just so effective. It's basically Saul Goodman at that point, right? <laughs> like, he's hired Saul. <laughs> 
And Matt Damon cannot be underrated in this movie. This is a high wire act to do. He has to carry this movie. You know, he's in almost every scene and has to be genuine and believable on the surface while he the actor knows what's actually going on and he the he the character knows but we don't necessarily and and to be able to do all that and be funny it's it's such a showcase i'm surprised more people didn't i guess i'm not really this feels like a movie that with that whose tone is so specific and so unusual that i can imagine sort of you know the at the time the demographics of the academy was you know was skewed much older and i think that i could see you know people not what like I'm not understanding it. What is this crazy thing he's you know he's trying to do? And the music, you know, which is so sort of seems in some ways tonally off from what's going on in the movie. The music is so good though. It's perfect. It reminded me of the like the Brady Bunch almost or like that era. I mean, the film has a very sort of 70s look to it, but it takes place in the 90s. So, yep, thinking about that halfway through, it's like these people they're just stuck in that era, that business era yeah. in that in that way of thinking. And and the you know the the music you know he got Marvin Hamlish to do the score. Marvin Hamlish is a is an EGOT and a Pulitzer Prize winner for a chorus line, and is a he has moved from you know pop music to the musical theater to movies to TV. Was just a is a you know is a legend in the business. And and I love the score to this movie. A lot of people don't. When the movie came out, a lot of critics had a real problem with the score. I just don't think they they had clicked into it. But one of one of my favorite scenes uh, is with one of the first times that Matt Damon is wearing the wire and he walks into <laughs> his building and he's narrating, he's talking to the wire as he walks away from the guy saying, that was Bill so-and-so with such and such. That was Bill so-and-so. With Hello, such and such. Liz Taylor, secretary. Yeah. And Exactly. And by the way, I, did, I just made up that thing I just said. Like he's walking through his office talking to the wire. I mean, it's just in any other filmmaker's hands, any one of these pieces couldn't work. We've talked a lot about Soderbergh's experiments here. And I feel like this is one that could have gone south so many ways like there are so many so many ways for this not to work and only about three for it to work really well and i think he found it you know i can't imagine another filmmaker who could make this movie out of this material i really like the music to this i just like this type of music in general i don't know it reminds me of cartoons a lot like old warner brother cartoons or whatever what have you growing up it just gives me like instantly i'm transported in my head to like 75 degrees and everything's fine territory and it just gave me a sense of that's what's playing in matt damon's head as he walks around doing this all day long like he's just whistling dixie in his mind and like all this serious stuff is happening because of him but he's just gonna you know do 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 like i'll just go to my desk whatever and i, and I also love like at times the, you know sometimes in films it's very distracting or annoying if music is sort of guiding you you know what the right. way you're supposed to be feeling but i kind of appreciated what it did in this because when he started mentioning like secret agent stuff you'd get a little like james bond strumming <laughs> yeah. of the score yeah. like it would sort of change instruments for a minute and be composed in more of like a uh, you know a danger man type um, music or something when he pulls into the garage after he first talks to the fbi and like it's just like a slow you know normal person pulling into the garage but like it's got this like 60s spy music behind it like it's just so out of place that it's just perfect it's so wonderful so i can understand if it is kind of bothersome people because it is constant like that i will say about it that might be too much maybe but i just considered it was what he was hearing you know it was just right like... exactly that's exactly it. it is the musical equivalent of his monologues of his of his you know his voiceover this is what he hears in his head this is the soundtrack he imagines for his life 
Also, just in terms of the spy theme, before we move on from that, he calls himself Secret Agent 0014 <laughs> because he's twice as smart as 007. So, like, here's something that, like, I guess going back and re-examining the movie, knowing what the ending is, they mention a few times the Nigerian prince scam, and they talk about how he was, like, suckered in, but, like, was he actually? Like, I can't tell. Did he fall for it, or he just, like, see that as an opportunity to make money? Like, it's that stuff like that is sort of unclear, because a couple times throughout the movie, people bring up Nigeria, or that, like, he got something from Nigeria. And, like, you think about that, but they finally mention that scheme at the end, and I I don't know that they ever really sort of put a button on it, but, like, is that how he extorted, like, the $11 million? Like, he just sort of used that kind of thing on his bosses and his company? I am also not entirely clear. I thought they were sort of comparing what he did to the FBI as kind of, like, what the 419 fraud does to people it's like they bought what he was fishing hook line and sinker basically and like i think they feel like the way people feel once they find out that they've been scammed i'm not quite clear but that's sort of how i pieced it together in my mind it's not clear and and they and they says at one point one of the fbi agents says you know who's stupid you know the people who are stupid enough to or have you ever wondered who's stupid enough to fall for these nigerian schemes and then it cuts to Matt Damon. But he puts his hand on the agent next to him first after he says yeah. that. He, as if to say, this is the guy who fell for that scam. Oh, and then they cut yeah. to Matt Damon as if he is the fraud. He's running the scam. I, yeah, I don't know. It's not clear. I have not pieced that together. It's not clear. Because it's also not clear, really. The fact that he's an informant for two and a half years means he's good enough to not get caught. But then we also see, like, because we see him at that one point where he finally gets them to all say that they agree to the price fixing. Like, he's, like, rearranging people away from the lamp and, like, sort of clearing the space and, you know, getting them to say the right thing. But then earlier in the movie, we have him opening up his briefcase to, like, stop the whirring or stop the clicking on the tape recorder. So, like, I think a lot of things are sort of unclear about, like, how smart people are or how good they are at their job or whatever. It feels sort of real in that way, I think, right? Like, it's sort of this fluctuation of that they're not always flawless, they don't always mess up, but, like, they kind of are sometimes really good at doing things, and sometimes just, like, how are you able to tie your own shoes and, like, not fall (laughs) over? You know what I mean? Like, the time frame or the timeline of this film isn't entirely felt. I don't feel it entirely. Like, it doesn't feel like it takes place as long as it does to me. But by the end of the movie, you know, his attorney's like, we have hundreds of tapes or something. I'm like, what? We saw him maybe make one or two tapes throughout the movie. So there's a lot we're not seeing. I just assumed it was like kind of a very on and on again, off again type of investigation. Like things would heat up and then they'd cool off and uh, he would sort of pump the brakes a little bit and then he would you know, kick the fires whenever he wanted it to just keep happening more. So, but I really loved when the people he worked for, like they have hired Clancy Brown as their attorney yeah. and they figure out the forging has been going on and they like call him on the phone and they finally feel like they've nailed them. Like that to me, Joey, like represents what you're talking about is the fact that like everyone is just sort of like self-absorbed with what they're doing, not looking at other people and checking in on stuff or like there's no checks and balances and like was sort of just like drifting in their own little worlds not paying attention very clearly and then when they have like this one victory they just like it's as if they're like they've won and they're popping champagne bottles but like most of those people those people still get like three to five years in prison so i don't know what they're happy about 
It also makes me wonder in that regard, like, he says that he told his secretary, Liz, I'm doing some work with the FBI. I might be out of touch for a while. Like, what did she do with that information? She, he, like, he basically says, like, I'm informing on the entire company. And then she's like, okay, like, sounds good. Like, I don't, we, I don't think we ever see her. We just hear him talk to her or talk about her. But like, man, like, everybody in this movie is just like, what are you doing? It's great because there's like there's, there'll be a scene where he's with the FBI and uh, he'll be like, you know, don't tell anybody that we're talking. Yeah. And then in the next scene, it'll be in the newspapers. And, and then in the next scene, his attorney's like, what are you doing? You're in the papers. Like <laughs> He like undermines every step. You know, I, I really think that's what is cool about this movie, too, is that each scene sort of starts with a high and ends with a twist in a way or like starts with yeah. a twist. It's really cool how it progresses like that. I, I really it keeps me engaged as to like, where's this story going? Like sometimes you get really good, like shaggy dog tales and sometimes you get kind of rough ones like love inherent vice but that's kind of a rough one and <laughs> like big lebowski is like a great one you know and i feel like this is a really good one too like it just keeps that carrot out in front of your mule and you know you're just going down that dirt road like where the hell is this going yeah which may have been why part of the reason maybe critics didn't respond to it or, or audiences really the first time it came out is because it's hard to pin down like it's in retrospect you can kind of see where it's headed and how it's playing with the whistleblower you know genre but it just as you say it from scene to scene you never quite know where the scene's going to land or who's going to pop up in a cameo or what lie he's going to tell next or a voiceover is going to happen or how he's going to deliberately do opposite of what he's been told to do in the previous scene that it keeps you on your toes in a, in a real, um, I think, in a real fun way, if you know that's the kind of movie that you're headed into. I wonder how you market this movie. Like, how do you, I know, Joe, you don't watch trailers, but I would think this would be a really hard movie if, so, if they handed this you know, to you and said, hey, how do you get people to come to this movie without spoiling it? This is a hard one. This is a hard one to get, pe- get people to know what they're in for. I feel like you probably sell it as a Matt Damon comedy, right? I guess I would guess it's kind of like downsizing. Like, I don't know what the downsizing trailer is, but I mean, I saw that and that's not very funny. Well, I think it's like, you know, from the director of Oceans 11 and 12 starring the star of Oceans 11 and 12, you know, and 13 at this point. Sorry. From the writer of The Bourne Ultimatum. Yeah. So you you sell it as like this package of talent instead of a story problem. Prob- I don't know. I can't remember the, what the trailers were, but I doubt it was about like this intriguing price fixing of orange juice scandal. I doubt they're selling it based off that plot. Right. Because then what I wonder is if you have people coming into this movie thinking it's a comedy, I don't know that they would be, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, because it's not Bridesmaids. It's not broad comedy. It's not that kind of sitcom based comedy that you see out there. You know, one thing that I really like about this movie, and I don't know if it's throughout most of it or just certain scenes when I picked up on it, but like, there's a lot of scenes that are heavily tinted yellow, because it's all about corn, sort of, right? right? And so it's just sort of subtle in that way. I mean, not that the tinting is subtle, but it's just like, oh yeah, like this is like his entire world, his entire life is wrapped up in this company and what he's doing, you know, whether that's actually being helpful to the company or tearing it down from the inside. He's surrounded by this yellow haze kind of at most points in his life. 
Yeah, it's a really unusual look. And he's he's shooting this, again, as the cinematographer under his pseudonym, Peter Andrews, but he's not editing it. He's brought in Stephen Marone, or Maroney, I, I guess I don't know how he pronounces it, who was his editor on the Oceans movies and went on to edit Birdman and The Revenant and, and those movies. I like seeing other editors work on his material. I'm sure he would have edited it just fine. But there's something to the, there's a clip to it that I think does match the sort of Oceans, not tonally, but it there's there's a fizz to it pacing wise comes through in the editing i think that we was smart to do that this time around there's one thing about the way this movie looks that i mean i don't mind it but i noticed it and i wonder if you guys noticed it too and i think i noticed it again it might come up again and it may have come up once before some of the shots kind of feel a little overexposed or blown out or that like the dynamic range of his camera isn't strong enough because he's shooting digital maybe or but i don't know sometimes just when there were like open windows or very bright lights it just seemed to be uh, overwhelming and now maybe that is is uh, he's trying to use that to tell the story somehow but i wasn't able to really it, it just felt a little more distracting to me uh, it didn't ruin the movie but i just noticed it it would seem to be by design you know he's been able to to you know to use the first red camera on che and and not have that issue to have to girlfriend experience and not have that issue you know it, there must be some whether it works or not, I don't know. But there, I, I, there must be some sort of. Or we know from traffic, right? From the Mexican sequences and traffic, he is not afraid of shooting a whole section of a movie, blowing it out and having it really overexposed. Even in that movie, even the San Diego stuff, Luis Guzman Don Cheadle section is a little bright uh, in in the white. So I, yeah, I don't know. It's a good it's a good question. I noticed it. I don't yet have a, a clear reading on why it's happening, but it does seem to be on purpose. All right. I mean, it doesn't break the movie by any means, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's totally fine. It's unusual, though. It's unusual for sure. Yeah. It just seemed to be maybe drawing attention to itself for a reason. I wasn't quite sure what that reason might be. Oh, one thing I read, not to change topics too drastically, but one thing that I read was that that final apology that Matt Damon gives to the judge, Steven Soderbergh told him to read the line or say the line like he was accepting an Academy Award, and <laughs> it works. Yeah. Matt Damon loved that. He also said that Soderbergh, or that to gain, because he gained like 20 or 30 pounds for this movie, and he said that he ate lots of hamburgers, pizza, and dark beer, which he said was, quote, really, really, really fun. So uh, <laughs> I think, you know, it feels like it'd be a fun movie to shoot because he just did three born movies. He did three actual spy movies. Here he's kind of a spy, but it's also kind of a comedy. And you're working with all funny people and you're working with a director you've worked with three or four times before that you're going to work with another three or four times. And like, I can imagine this is probably one of the more fun movies yeah. to shoot of anything that we've covered here, I think. Just because it seems like, you know, the movie itself... I can totally see why people, like we talked about, why, you, why, why people might not think this is funny, but I feel like all the boxes are there, like this must have been probably really enjoyable to shoot for every reason across the board. I kept wondering in the scene where he that we've talked about where he's walking into the office talking to the wire, the outtakes of that must be hysterical. Like because everybody in the in the you know, who's acting, all the all the background actors who are sitting at their desks and walking through the office and you know, hear him doing that and it's all it's maybe it's two shots, but it's basically one long take that brings him in talking to this guy and then over to his office. And I could just you could you could almost feel in the frame these actors holding it together like barely 
barely making it as he's whispering to himself all the way in because of course all the sounds that of all the office sounds are all added later like when they shoot it it's just him everybody's being very quiet and you know mouthing words they'll, they'll put in background dialogue later and so it's just him talking to himself walking to his office and everyone around listening to him i i just think i think you're totally right this must have been a really really especially with so many funny people on the on the shoot it must have been it must have been a, a hoot yeah i totally get that sense like sometimes i watch movies and i'm like oh i think they had too good a time on set like it's not coming together <laughs> right. but this genuinely feels like i feel like matt damon is like really embracing this role like because by now you know he is born and he's known as sort of a badass and before that he didn't really have that greater reputation as an actor he was just like a pretty boy pretty much and here like this is not a vanity thing at all you know like he's got that stupid mustache he's gained like 40 pounds by the end of this the uh the rug's gonna come off and he'll be stupid bald too looking and everything you know so it just seems like he really threw himself into this and challenged himself and succeeded like i was really impressed by this performance like even more so you know this time like the first time i was i was like wow this is kind of like i wonder if we're gonna see him do more comedy you know he did that one siamese twin movie with greg kinnear that just like oof that is a high turn that oof that's a tough one but here it's like oh no like it's possible you just need soderbergh to bring it out you know like we've said in the past like this guy is just able to show these guys like what they're capable of that they might just like haven't done yet it's wild this movie also continues for Soderbergh his interest in the perils of capitalism. Uh, again, not that I'm suggesting that he wants to tear, tear the system apart, but just pointing out what it does to people. And in this case, you know, before we've had sort of from bubble to you know to the girlfriend experience, we've been we've been on the sort of consumer end a little bit. And here we're in the you know the, like the mega corporation, the conglomerate side, and and to see that they're largely just as sort of doofusy as <laughs> as anybody else, and then and the fact that they're like. Like they're, they're, they don't, these guys don't need to steal money. You know, they're making millions of dollars at the uh, tens of hundreds of millions of dollars at the company level. And these guys, as we know from, you know, from Mark, the, from the Mark Whitaker, the, the Matt Damon character, he's doing just fine. Like he has how many cars, you know, like nine cars or whatever. Right. Three, he doesn't even drive. Yeah. And they only in, they're not only, but in this system, these people steal because they can. And in so many ways, we let them get away with it. And he makes a, Matt Damon's character makes a point at the end where he says, look, I stole, you know, I took kickbacks and I got nine years and these guys stole from everybody. Like these guys stole from the entire world, basically. From the breakfast table. Right, that's what he says. Something like that. Everybody is ripped off by the time his breakfast is over, and he gets, and he get these guys get three years. I think that that's a as unreliable a narrator as he is. I think that given Soderbergh's other films, he really does believe that that is you know deeply unfair, and that this movie sort of this fits very much in in line in that line for Soderbergh as well. Now tackling it from a kind of different angle. Yeah, I mean, I would even throw Ocean's Eleven into that mix a little, right? Where you have these underdogs, right? Stealing from people, these people that have more than they need. And we never really see, because he's very clearly well off too, but we never see like him flaunt his wealth, right? They don't focus on his house or his car or like, you know, I think they they mentioned one point that Melly Linsky has like new jewelry or whatever, but like, because he's obviously probably 1% too, right? But like, he's he's still kind of like a Robin Hood, sort of. Like, he's a weird Robin Hood. He's a Robin Hood that shouldn't be a Robin Hood. 
he steals from the rich and he gives to himself. Right, right. Like, that's what he's up to. <laughs> but you're right. Like, he doesn't, we don't really, the movie doesn't show him flaunting it. Like, there's one shot of him driving, like, a really nice sports car into his garage. But I think that's when the spy thing kicks in. And then there's one where he, I think he has some people over his house and we see he's got, like, a rumpus room with, like, a pool table. And I was like, oh, well, that's a very, like, he yeah. must be doing very well for himself. But, like, aside from that, I didn't really, you know, you see he lives in a mansion in the middle of nowhere, but, like, you don't really get the sense, you're right, that, like, he's showing off he's flaunting any of it by any means so like it's not really about the money it's just like then what is it about it's something else and he can't get to the bottom of that he's a social justice worrier i guess like he just you know like he wants to give his son that horse stable across the road but like he wants to make sure that you're not robbing every grocery store in the country and only getting three years in prison like he wants these guys taken down taken out and sort of locked away forever because they are the worst people on the planet, even though they're really, they're sort of playing within the rules, right? Like, I mean, they're kind of maybe price fixing, but it also feels like... Well, no, if if they were playing in the rules, well, I think two things. I think you're right that the that Soderbergh's saying the rules are broken, but also, you know, they're, what they're doing is illegal and they do go to jail for it. Right. But it also feels like it's amplified by Matt Damon. Like, they were sort of kind of breaking the law and then he's like, well, let's really break the law and then I'll take you down. Oh, like he's entrapping them somehow? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I feel like he is trying to incriminate them so that he doesn't get caught, but it's fruitless because by doing so, like, all of this stuff about what he's been doing has to come to the surface. It's impossible to hide from what he's started, basically. I don't think I have anything else to say. Oh, there's one thing that uh, Tony Hale, who I think Mike might have mentioned really early on, but Tony Hale's in this movie, also not doing anything funny. He's an attorney, and he has a Mobius advertising award in his office, and we haven't seen that that word come up in a while, but Mobius is uh, Soderbergh's production company, right? And that was something in all of his early movies. Everything was sort of named Mobius, so... I will say about Tony Hale, though, like, of, of all the sort of comedic actors who aren't cracking jokes necessarily, like, he... He has got some amazing facial expressions. Damon just, like, catches him off guard every scene where he's like, all right, we're going to go do our deposition with the FBI. And Matt Damon's like, yeah, now it's time to really tell the truth. And he's just left there with, like, his mouth agape, standing, like, outside the door. I think there's several instances where, like, they're in court and Tony Hale is just, like, looking at the people Matt Damon's talking to and just, like, nodding with his eyes, like, really wide open (laughs) and stuff. I felt like he was really well cast because if you're going to be this guy's attorney, you have to be able to show, you know, you know something's wrong with this guy and like this is crazy, but he's probably paying him like a million dollars to defend him, so gotta at least try. I feel like if I had to describe what Tony Hale was doing in this movie, it feels like every scene he's about to take notes and then so baffled by what he hears, (laughs) he can't even put pen to paper. And I feel like it's kind of like this inverse of, you know, Buster Bluth or Gary from Veep, where it's just like, he's usually the guy who is kind of like baffling everybody else, like with just like his head in the clouds or whatever of, of kinds, right? But like, here's just like, is this guy for real? Like, it's like, it's like he's looking in a mirror and the reflection is one of his other characters. It's just that level of like, I can't believe what this guy is telling me. Yeah, totally. The other thing I love about his performance is that they keep putting him behind these desks that seem too tall for him. So it's like the desk comes up to the top of his chest. And I think really what it is, he's just sort of sinking lower and lower. As you say, he's trying to take some notes and and act like a real lawyer or be a real lawyer to this guy. And this guy keeps pulling out the rug underneath him and he just keeps going lower and lower. But I love the fact he looks like a a toddler by the end behind this, this giant desk. Even if you did not know him and love him from his other work, it's a great role. 
I think I'm just about out of things to say. I mean, I just want to reiterate once again how much I like everything about this movie. It also feels like a movie that I'm going to keep liking more and more each time I watch it. Like Now that I sort of know what it's about, know how to watch it, I guess. Uh-huh, right, right. Uh, it works really well for me. This is one that I was sort of, I was looking forward to because I didn't like it. Because it was one that I'd seen. Because a lot of what from what we're covering from here on out, I have seen already. And I like most of it. But this one was one of the last ones that I've seen and I wasn't crazy about. And I was like, I wonder if it'll be different. I still don't think doing this podcast is what changed it for me. But maybe it was. But I, I, I'm glad that we did this podcast, if only for me to rewatch this movie and be like, oh, yeah, this movie is a delight. I think maybe partially for me, what makes it a little better is just that, like, the social climate has changed a lot since 09. And, like, we're in a very different place. And I can look back at what seems like a more innocent time, perhaps, and and maybe laugh a little easier at at those days than, than as if this was, like, you know, about today and the you know, nefarious things that are happening in the business world as we speak. There's just some kind of sense of whimsy about it that you don't expect from a movie about, like, embezzling or robbery or anything like that. Like, it's just very disarming, and, and I feel like it's very much part of its charm. It does a thing kind of like the big short, I guess, right? Where it takes a very complex business finance thing, and by using comedy, the comedy makes the pill go down easier, even if underneath it is all this pain and, you know, and sorrow and crushed lives and all, all, all this stuff. But it, it, in some ways, maybe is, is kind of a precursor to that movie. Mike, any last thoughts about The Informant? Exclamation point, which I feel like between this movie and Mother, even though this movie is from eight years ago, like it's a good time right now to be a movie with an exclamation point in the title. Well, like Tobin says, it definitely deserves it. It does. And so does Mother, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, the one thing I noticed that was sort of not bothered. Well, the one thing I noticed that just kept like making me wonder throughout this movie is in the background, uh, part of the amazing scene, a lot in the background, um, in multiple locations, there's either a photo or a bust of Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, you know, he was Honest Abe. That was his name. And, you know, that's his nickname, Honest Abe. And we're basically dealing with, you know, dishonest Abe here uh, the whole time. So, you know, if you pick up on that, it's kind of a cool little Easter egg, I guess, like a funny visual contradiction extension of what's going on there. Yeah, and I guess my point is that just this feels very well put together. Like it felt well thought out, well executed and successful in what it's trying to do. And I understand like we mentioned, like Tobin mentioned is, you know, it didn't really manage to find its market or like, you know, it's not it's not an easy movie to sort of peg. But I think that's okay. Like, I, I think if it connects with you, that's great. If it doesn't, that's fine too. But if it does, like, I really feel like uh, it's worth it and, and it's a really fun movie. I really like it. And I think it made my top five. I put my Soderbergh ranking yep. list together and I believe it's number five. So Yeah, it is. And Tobin, where is it in yours? Where is it in your list? Is it like toward the middle? It's at, it's a number nine. It's a number nine. Number nine. Yeah, yeah. Above, above the halfway yeah. point. That's good. Yeah, I think we, I think we're all in agreement. And I feel like like you guys have said, this is one that could shift. The more I see it, a lot of these I feel real solid about where it is on my list. The informant feels like it could move. Uh, the one last thing I wanted to say that uh, one of the things I remember reading Soderbergh talk about when he had made this movie, we, we've talked before in the past about how his idea of you know, you make one or two main big stylistic decisions about how you take a point of view on your on your script as you go in to make the movie on, on how you're going to shoot it or edit it or, or whatever, how you're going to actually bring it to life. And then you, you sort of 
that guides you through the rest of the process. And I feel like he clearly has in terms of the way he's casting it and the way he's doing the, the voiceover and, and the music. Another thing that he did in this movie that, that he talked about very explicitly is there's only one close-up of Matt Damon in this whole movie. And it comes in the scene an hour and 36 minutes into the movie when he is finally caught in his lie, when he can no longer run away from the lying, that scene we've talked about. And then you finally get an actual full-on single close-up of the Matt Damon character. And the movie before then is sort of, in a general sense, is progressing toward that. It's getting closer and closer to him on average as the movie goes along. But he withholds having an actual close-up until that moment. And he talked about this by design. Like, that's the moment when he's forced to face himself, when he has to sort of look at, at what he's done and, and be... For a split second, at least, honest with who he is and what he's done. And, I, you know, I didn't know that the first time I saw it. I read it after I watched the movie. And then in seeing it since then, it really does have an impact, like knowing that it's there. But I think sort of subconsciously it has an impact, even if you don't know that it's there, that you're so you're kept at a distance from this guy, which may have also been like, that's a, that's kind of a bold decision this day and age. And it feels like something that could put an audience off. But I think it's so effective here. And, and you know, when we post this episode, I've, I've screenshot that close up. I will tweet it out as we as we get to it, but because it's Ooh. it's such a it's such a good moment. I think that he's you know he really makes that moment stand out in every possible way by having the voiceover trip him up, by cutting out the music that's been so constant through the whole thing, and watching him flounder, and then watch him flounder in this close up. I just think is a brilliant move on Soderbergh's part. Well, as this episode comes out, it's February 19th, so make sure you're checking at Tobin Addington on Twitter to see that screenshot, see that close up, which is really cool. I like that a lot. So for all things Cinemakers and everything at the Cage Club Podcast Network, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. It is February now, so we are a few months into our newest podcasts. We are a few months into Watch the Throne. We are a few months into Too Fast, Too Forever, Boyfriend Material, Magic Mike's. All the other shows still trucking along. Maybe Mike's new show is started by now. Maybe Tobin's new show is started by now. But anyway, go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter for all things Cage, Keanu, Cinemakers, and more. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.